Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to another live stream Q&A session here on SFIA, where we take your questions live from the chat and my wife relays them to me and we go ahead and answer them as best as we can. As usual, Sarah Fowler Arthur, my beloved co-host, will be getting your questions out from there, but the mods that normally help out with that aren't online just yet, so we may be going a little bit slow. Also, someone asked right before we got started if we go up with a physics-based game to get a special answer in there, and I went with an Audi and a classic, if one and a half chickens lay one and a half eggs in one and a half days, how many chickens do nine, sorry, how many eggs do nine chickens lay in nine days? So if you can answer that, and I don't think it was actually put in the answer yet... Uh, you'll get your question special answered. <laughs> Do we have any get started? We have a few answers so far, but as you already mentioned, they're not correct. Uh, we had a few guesses at nine, the trick question, that half chickens can't lay half eggs, which is trickily true. Um, <laughs> they, someone that would like to see a half a chicken lay half of an egg. Yeah, we're looking for the mathematical, you know, the mathematician's answer, not the engineer or physicist's answer on this one. So. <laughs> <laughs> For all purposes today, one and a half chickens can lay one and a half eggs. And, and someone, someone else said they're craving chicken and eggs, so I'm wondering, you know, what happens if in that nine-day period How long does someone the waffle eats house? Some we, we've never actually been to the Waffle House together, have we? It actually is What's one What's that have to do with chicken and eggs? Very few of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are very few Waffle Houses in our area. We have a few answering 81 mm -hmm. after you said the mathematician answer. Mm -hmm. And... If one half chickens lay one and a half eggs in one and a half days, how many eggs do nine chickens lay in nine days? That's the one trick question back. How many eggs can ten roosters lay over ten days? Depends on... <laughs> Very few. What well, we an so I too, had so 200 yeah. laying hens in a different life a year before we got married, mm -hmm. and I never saw a rooster lay an egg yet. That no. one we can answer yeah, with right. certainty. So. <laughs> uh, moving on here, we have a uh, just a preliminary question. Someone wants to know if we were affected by the chemical spill in East Palestine. Um, yeah, that was about 60 miles south of us as the crow flies, something along those lines. So we were up by the lake. That's more the Youngstown area. So it's not that, uh, I mean, if the wind had been blowing north, maybe, but I think it was more of uh, northeast for the, during the born. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't see any signs. I didn't smell it. A lot of our friends, obviously, are a little bit further south of us uh, in the county in the rest of Sarah's district. Yeah, but not so much where we're at. So we seem to be fine. So Yes, that, that would appear to be the case so yeah. far. In other words, uh, we have a question here from Floor Horbeck. In other words, can RFD send its signal through metal cars for a sensor to receive it, or does it need more power like CIA tags or something? Was this one from uh, dangerous object tagging for probes? Yes. Um, I mean, kind of the idea that you could tag objects, um, you know, like a dangerous object, uh, so that it couldn't enter a certain perimeter, right? It's like a safety mechanism, uh, like a handgun, for instance, not to enter a courthouse. Um, you could certainly tag things that way. The problem is, one of the things we have in terms of like automatic shopping, where we want to go to a shop and just have things, you know, ring up. You might remember that one commercial from I don't know, it was Visa or MasterCard where it shows this guy, it looks like he's shoplifting, but he walks out and it just automatically rings up and they wave him goodbye. 
because uh, he's not going through any like self scan or something like that. The problem with doing that, which I would love to do because it would save so much money, right, is that uh, RF is not very reliable at distance or through interference, you know. Um, there are ways around that, but I think you're more likely to see automatic scanning technology, like the cart built in to see what's scanning inside it. You just put a scan on the cart, or you just do it like what Sam's Club does, which has got a little scanner you can just scan as you go on your phone. Use that nice little computer scanner there, and just bring it up on the way out. Um, obviously, that's there's a lot of things that have to fall into place correctly for that to really become viable. It's still in what I'd say prototyping phase in all commerce these days. But same for like protected things like a hazmat object not to be able to be removed is you also have to make sure no one has a way to remove the RF tag, for instance. So that could be easier said than done. <laughs> um... Ojinta Oji says, hypothetically speaking, can the nuclear strong force range and polarity be manipulated so as to make it work as a form of artificial gravity or artifi alternatively as a protective force field? What was it again? Nuclear strong forces yeah. range and polarity. You mean switch around? So, well, the nuclear strong force, the gluon, right? Effectively, the gluon. Um, holds together nucleons, so quarks, if you for. Um, that is a force that gets stronger the further away you are. It's think of it like a spring. You have two quarks being held together with a glue on, for instance. You start pulling those apart, right? And the string pulls harder and harder and harder, and you have to exert more and more energy to break it. And when it snaps, all that energy turns it into two new particle pairs. So I've ripped these two particles apart, and the energy I took to do that formed another particle attached to each one of them. That's how quark production happens. Um, I don't know how you would cause that to flip over so that it was like the other way around, but I think if you did, if it suddenly was like, well, now this force gets weaker over distance, I'm pretty sure all matter in the area would immediately fall apart. So I'm not sure I properly understood that question, but I, I don't see how that would work out very well. Might make for a great weapon. We have an episode I just got done writing called Warping Reality where we talk about a lot of those options, so... Will Philippi, welcome. He says it's his first time joining us for a live stream. Welcome. We're very glad to have you. Raven says, what are your thoughts on there being more planets beyond the Kuiper Belt? More planets beyond the Kuiper Belt? Um, yes, we already have. I mean, Fallout is past the Kuiper Belt. I think the usual definition for the Kuiper Belt is that it's 30 to 50 AU out. Um, and I might have those numbers a little bit off, though. But I think it's supposed to be done by the time you get to 100 AU. And I know this gets a little blurry between like the scattered disk versus the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and there are at least two planets out there at this instance that we know of. Um, we, they're called Far Out and Far Far Out. And they're out way past even Hawama. The other two planets we discovered in the early 2000s, they for various Hawaiian gods and memory stores, or possibly Easter Island gods. And then the other one, Eris, which I believe was uh, a little bit bigger than Pluto. That kind of raised the whole dwarf planet issue in the first place. Um, and I think that one's out past the Kuiper Belt, too. But as to more things out there, oh, yeah. I'd be really shocked if we didn't find wads and wads and wads of dwarf plants out there. Is the Leventhal Paradox a great filter? It says the chances for a protein folding naturally are 10 to the 300th power. Do we need to find a rare ETA Earth first and then apply these odds afterwards? This uh, is a question from Reverend RV. Yeah. You know, that might be more of a, a biophysics question, but Levendahl's paradox has to do with the idea that protein folding is very unlikely to occur, um, and that original ones would be very hard to do. And I'm going to have to mostly punt on that question because I don't know what the current state of play on the probabilities they are. I know there's been, I remember this mostly as a question of 
people debating a lot what the odds should be because we didn't have enough modeling data yet. But I feel like if I answer that one, I'm as likely as not to get it just wrong, wrong. So we'll punt on that one, sorry. But fundamentally, anything that would decrease the odds of proteins occurring, folding, any macromolecules that we need for life occurring, that would be a huge possibility for initiating uh, life on planets. So yes, it would be a potential good, great filter if the odds were low. 10 to the 300, it definitely would be very low. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we have a question here from Arturo Gutierrez. How many galaxies escape forever out of reach each second as the cosmological event horizon expands? Uh, probably less than one per second. I, I, let me think on this one real quick because we kind of hard. Um, I want to say, let's say there's 100 billion galaxies that will be in the area that would leave in the next... Uh, 100, well, most will do in the next 10 billion years, I think, but let's say it was 100 billion galaxies that would flee over the course of 10 billion years to keep the math order of magnitude accurate and fast. That would be 10 per year that we'd be losing. Um, in which case, obviously, that would be like one for every 300,000, well, 3 million seconds, sorry. Uh, it could be as high as one per day. I don't think it's higher than that, though. Again, napkin math, it can be kind of hard to even be hitting the right order of magnitude. I'm not that could do any of those numbers fast. So I would say that if we were even losing one per day, I'd be surprised though. But it is faster right now as things, you know, there's so much more than on the edge that's moving away. So, so here's an interesting question from Nilano. When and at what point do you think that technology will hit diminishing returns, such as life in one million years looks more like life in 10 million years than life today looks like life last century? Um, you know, because again, Society isn't really all that driven by technology. We we are very fixated on that, but technology didn't change that much between, say, 0 AD and 500 AD. Um, you can, obviously, I'm sure I'm going to get some historians writing me notes about how much it did change, but it's nothing compared to what we'd have happened in one decade nowadays. Um, but at the same time, most of the reason why it seems like history doesn't change much in that time is because most of the time we're lucky if we have one book per year to actually, you know, reference against in that era and it doesn't there's no reason to think society was very static then when it wasn't very technologically driven you could find eras where there wasn't much going on our problem is that mostly they've all recorded written bits off from empires that were busy improving technology and doing new things but there are vast chunks of human history where technology in a given area really did not change but that culture did and i really would not expect there to ever be a kind of a stagnant period where human history is concerned we are just very i'd say we may have some blinders on from assuming that technology is the driving force of all culture. It's certainly a big one, but I think we're kind of wrong to assume that that is like all things will come to an end if we find out that we solve the last technological problem. I don't see that happening. So We have a couple of super chats here. I just want to shout out to Vince Cleaver. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, I'm happy that the Kim train hasn't harmed you. And Kedri Ayala uh, I enjoy your super suit videos and am designing my own. Good idea. If you like, well, let's say, my usual advice to people, well, it was easy to get into YouTube like 15 to 10 years ago and about when I got in, it was starting to get hard. It is always still, if you've got a, if you've got a topic that you really believe in, right? I mean, if you actually have material you want to create for other people to enjoy, you know, just want to be a YouTube star, then you should do it, period. It might not work out well. It might surprise you when it turns out a few hundred people actually watch it, you know, but whatever it is, it's very rarely a bad idea to put something quality out that talks about something that people should want to know. So, 
I, I'm enjoying watching all of the different answers for the chicken and egg question, yeah, I, but we're going to have to drop. Like, I hope I didn't miss, you know, somebody should recognize that one. It was a classic one out of Mensa. There's an Isaac Asimov um, story uh, in one of his robot novels where that's the question they asked the uh, the computer. But uh, if, if I horribly misstated that one, uh, <laughs> go with the answer that it's actually supposed to be. <laughs> Here's what I think someone was putting as a rhetorical question. If there's 100 to 1 rogues to stars, there could be rogues between solar systems and, say, Alpha Centauri. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Christian Corello, thank you for your super chat. If there's nothing an advanced species would want or need materially from a lesser one, would the main incentive for absorbing less advanced species into their empire be the satisfaction of ruling others? Um, maybe for some people. The thing is, never to think of a society as, as monomaniacal, right? Most people, like, when I was in the military, uh, in the army, we'd ask people, why did you join? And they'd usually give one of, like, six or ten different reasons. And everybody who's ex-military probably knows this one, you know, those, couldn't name them off the top of your head to you. Wanted to go see places, hey, wanted to get away from, like, a bad love, try, you know, whatever it was. There was a bunch of reasons. Wanted to pay for college, etc. And everyone would have one they went to that was their kind of go-to answer. But it wasn't there were six or ten answers they wouldn't subscribe to, so much as there were six or ten answers that at least half of them would be true for the individual person. People rarely do things for just one motivation that require a real effort. They We stack them up, right, we, until we get to that potential that makes us go do something, especially something really complex or hard, uh, like, you know, moving to go join the military or invading across half a galaxy to go take over a planet. And that's an individual. When you start dealing with a big civilization, there's going to be tons of other motivations involved. You go start a war and some people might be like, wait, great, we're going to go free that group of people. Other people say, great, I can finally sell all these guns I've been buying up. You know, There's going to be many different factors in play and motivations. As to whether or not someone's going to enjoy ruling people, there's always the chance that something like that would qualify as a kind of a mental health issue uh, to some degree or another. And if that was the case, I do tend to assume that advanced civilizations will tend to solve things like that. Um, you know, that like you wouldn't have people with very extreme off-putting social problems because they'd be viewed as a health issue, be fixed in the hospital like a missing finger, you know. But uh, that's a guess. Albert Jackinson, welcome back. He says, good afternoon, Isaac and Sarah. With all the recent AI news in the past month about chat GPT and Bing, I've been wondering what sort of effects will its descendants have by the end of the century? By the end of its um Figure on real AI, like the classic AI already being out by then. Um, I really don't know that that automatically leads to super genius AI. It just means it would look like it in a lot of capacities. But, you know, if you have a chatbot that's able to simultaneously carry on 500 conversations with people at once, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a super godlike intelligence any more than a big piston machine that could lift for 500 people would be. Um, you know, we have a lot of tools that outperform humans in this or that category. And we've kind of narrowed it down to say only mental ones really count instead of physical ones. Then we've kind of narrowed that down to only creative ones. There's probably no individual task a human can do that we couldn't make a machine specialized to do that one job. Um, so there's going to be a lot of concerns with that. Concern. The, the AI problems are ones we all kind of know too. It's just chat GPT and AI alt of the last couple of months has been kind of raising the ball, making people more notice it because conversations or something visual like that you can see kind of click that button but none of that stuff is actually all that profound in terms of ai research it's just this is the first kind of publicly visible example that people say that's new and cool and say well that's that's pretty much something we've been doing in other bits for the last decade too this is just specialized so 
The effect, of course, though, I mean, look at that in Machine Rebellion and Paperclip Maximizer, along with even more cyborgs in the Android series, we'll go into that in more detail. Good and bad depends mostly on how careless, stupid, or um, restrained we are in using the stuff. Michael says, what would be the most efficient way to transform the solar system into the most surface area for habitation? Mm. Um... You first have to decide if you need it to be, like, we usually say, well, the sun produces 2 billion times more light than Earth uses, therefore we can make 2 billion times that surface area for the sun. Uh, the other one that people would say is, well, Dyson Sphere would be the same distance wide as, as the Earth is from the sun. And, of course, that last one is not the case because we don't get sunlight on the planet all day long. We would fry if we got, you know, that amount of sunlight all day long. Um, so it actually more wide, like where Mars is at. And then you decide how much sunlight you actually need. You know, you could do something like an Alderson disk, for instance, where you put statites over the pole of the sun to kind of give the big reflective thing down over a huge wide plane. There's a lot of ways to do that, but the only control factor is, is the sun your only power source? Are you modifying the sun in some way? And are you fixated on having exactly the Earth level of light? Because there's ways you could have plants growing quite robustly on about a tenth of the sunlight that's actually produced. Especially if you are, say, upcycling that by something that's like stall boost, uh, stall boosting. Um, you could also just be adding in fusion reactors, fake suns, black hole generators, things like that. Fundamentally, you decide how much sunlight you need in terms of habitable area, and then you figure out what the output of the sun or everything else is. And for the sun, it's four times ten to the twenty-six watts, and or three point eight six or something like that, three point eight four. Um, and then you just divide it by how much sunlight we get, which is about a thousand watts at at solar noon. So uh, then you just throw that into whatever your foot answer is, based on your power output and how much sunlight you want. But about more than a billion Earths, probably less than ten, realistically, unless you start boosting your power supply. Isaac Bordeaux wants to know how old an astronomy book needs to be before it's considered outdated. Uh I'm going to give you the answer that one of my professors who actually published astronomy textbooks was, which was uh, before it actually managed to hit the press. Uh, it takes a couple of years to go through the you know review process on a textbook. That's why there's these long, steady editions. Um, you know, there's a lot of the books that I read when I was a kid. We had this one astronomy, like a whole bookcase on kids' astronomy books at our library in Madison, Ohio. It was very nice. And uh, some of those books from the 1950s. Which at the time we were talking about molecular gas clouds, and you know, it, it would not have looked like what we had now. Mercury was the hottest planet. Venus was probably a paradise. I actually read those as a kid. While at the same time, we had these beautifully autistic ones that were coming out from Isaac Asimov. Um, they were relatively short. I can't remember what the series was called, but it's three pages of mostly pictures and little bits of text aimed at kids. It was a great exploration, but there were other things wrong there. They're like, Jupiter has the most moons at 16. Well, now it's like 64, and I think Saturn's got one more identified than Jupiter right now. It changes a lot. There might be thousands of asteroids. Well, it turns out there's millions. Um, how many galaxies are? So I would say, if it's not inside the most recent decade, don't rely on it, unless it's something that we know will be like hard in there. They're not going to change how far away Mercury is from the sun, or what the rotational speed of Mars is, or things like that. But, uh, you know, I would basically say textbooks are mostly... Uh, you know, I'm not going to say that because I was going to say mostly useless these days. <laughs> I know too many people who publish them. Um, textbooks are often going to be limited when they're talking about new materials these days. This is the speed of the information updates. 
DJ Drax says, what are your thoughts that the first exoplanet that we visit is in fact a rogue? Um, I for qualifying a rogue as an exoplanet, that could be kind of debatable. Um, I think you probably would. I would say the answer is probably pretty high. Uh, there are plants around Alpha Centauri, and that's likely to be a big push. It's kind of like Mars. I can make some very good arguments for why Mars is not the best place to colonize first. At the same time, it's probably the first place we're going to have a manned mission to besides uh, the moon. Maybe a near-Earth asteroid might win out, but it's probably going to be Mars. It's not like we're going to colonize Venus first. For the same reason, the first place we're going is Alpha Centauri or Proxima. we got plants around both of those now that we've identified. So if we find some rogue plant that's within one light year, that's actually a really good plant worth visiting, yeah. Otherwise, nah. <laughs> Phantom says, what do you think the future of public transportation will look like? <laughs> yeah, the first thing that came to mind was the, uh, it was the show Futurama, where they got the old, like, messenger tubes you could send a bottled message in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that they had people pushing through on that one, so. <laughs> Um, you know, that, I would say the future of public transportation is probably something on the lines of, uh, Uber, but scaled up a little bit more, uh, and that might actually be in some cases a part of a public system. You're going to have your trains, your buses, you have your individual cars, and you have people who own individual cars, and you have people who own more commercially intended cars, and you're going to have people who kind of Airbnb their car, where it's like, this robot car will come pick you up instead. Automated vehicles is definitely the future. Whether that's human-assisted or machine-assisted human-driven ones or purely automated ones isn't a yes or no answer. There's going to be a role for both of those in there. And you're not going to waste time on having, like, how many cars you need versus how many cars are actually on the road at any given time. Most of us don't spend all day driving our vehicle. Flip side, time wears vehicles down, but mileage is what mostly wears vehicles down. Like, we have to replace our police cars here. Usually, what, three years is pretty long for a police cruiser, I mean, isn't it? You're shrugging. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, they have to place those very quickly. And that's because of mileage, you know. Uh, whereas, you know, your trucks that you might run for like, 30, 40 years old that are still in pretty good repair, just going to upkeep and have a lot of mileage on too. So um, the question then becomes, is it more convenient to have additional vehicles or to maximize how much time they're actually on the road per vehicle? And that's very economically specific. And I don't think I could answer that question. Mishko Smnovsky says, what do you think of bubble habs? Do we have the technology to build a city-sized dome or pressurized balloon that can float? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the idea of a bubble hab is essentially, let's say we're on Venus. Uh, in Venus, the atmosphere slowly gets less dense as you go up, of course, uh, but there's a spot where it's about the same density as oxygen, right, and where it's actually at semi-sane temperature and lighting. And so you can fill up, you know, fill up, big old balloon full of oxygen and nitrogen or you know and, and not even need to use helium then because it would just float in place um and it really couldn't fall that far down so it would just keep floating back up um or you might do a mixture of oxygen nitrogen and something that don't like helium and everyone have very high voices you know maybe you remove like 20 percent of the nitrogen and replace it with helium and it floats easy but what happens are definitely doable the thing is that you have a very limited amount of mass you know this is why we don't really use blimps that much is they have to be big which means there's a lot of air resistance and they don't really carry that much mass so the other factor of course is can i make something very strong that isn't going to leak and isn't going to you know um massively leak if i accidentally shoot it with a gun or something <laughs> so or stick it with a screwdriver and um 
at the risk of any people who are very big fans of blimps, because so am I, I think you have a lot of people who are very hesitant to really make a community based around something that was floating by buoyancy. Making an industry, because that's where you suck up all your volatiles uh, that you're going to ship off to Mars, or, you know, sucks up all your helium-3 you're using for aneutronic fusion, you know, those, that's an option, right? Making a resort that people visited, you know, because they really want to see what Venus was like, that's an option. But I suspect in most cases the population expansion would be in orbital objects that were orbiting, not uh, not floating. Hard to say, and depends a lot on people's confidence factor. Is that the cue for a new question? Yeah. <laughs> I was just laughing at some of the comments on some of your uh, commentary. You will have to go through them afterwards. Um, Hopefully not too bad. You, you had a question earlier that I was looking for again regarding... Um, and I was trying to find where it went. Do you want to come back and find out another one? No, I was trying to find it. I think I'm really close to so it. So like going back to the eggs thing, I think it came to mind also because we were thinking about getting an incubator for our kids. So we figured as we get into, into the, because um, they eat a lot of eggs. But uh, yes. I, I'm like, I like power breakfast. I like your big, you know, heavy breakfast to get started for the day too, so... But uh, that would be a good thing for them, too, is to kind of raise some chickens anyway. And Sarah used to do that as a profession back when she was a teenager or so. Well, when did you actually sell that? Was it in your early 20s? I was 11. Yeah. Well, no, when you got rid of the business. Uh, I sold it at 23. Yeah, okay. So, whole force yeah. business. So. <laughs> so, okay, this is a combination of two people's question because mm-hmm. I thought they fit together. Timothy Kuyper had said, Hi, Isaac, would you consider doing an episode in the theme of Star Trek's Mirror Universe? Perhaps you could be the benevolent emperor where everyone got a drink and a snack. <laughs> and I was coupling it with a question here from uh, Sukath. I can't pronounce the last name. If you could command the smartest one percent to focus on one topic for the next 50 years what would you have them work on oh good god um you know think about what qualifies the smallest one percent is that it's very hard to actually keep them focused on any one specific thing um you know i have a, i've had the unique ability well not unique by any means but the relatively rare chance to work with really small people in large groups on several occasions and what i've mostly found is that they can only do that for a very short period of time before they all wander off on their own things because it's almost like there's an attention span thing, like with a toddler or a puppy dog or a cat, they got very little attention span. And then a human learns to get more attention as they grow older and wiser. And But then for some reason, the higher creativity levels, which is not to say the higher wisdom levels, you start to start to see that attention span flubby off sometimes. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've offended a large chunk of my own audience. Uh, uh, but yes. it, it's, I mean, I, I have friends, obviously, who have researched one specific topic for decades. And I suppose you could say I kind of be fairly laser focused on things like space colonization, the phobia paradox too. But usually, one of the things I like about doing the weekly episode is I get to talk about something completely different for a whole week. And uh, so, you know, that's where my focus is when I'm writing that script. And a lot of times we'll come back to topics I'm familiar with, but it's nice to just zoom in on something specific for a couple of days and, and turn that episode out. Um, if I could actually get them all focused on one specific thing for one year, uh, I think it probably would be getting fusion walking, to be honest. That that would be that that's that energy fix solution. Work on getting me a fusion reactor that we can build for less per wattage cost than a gas generator. And if we can do that, great. That solves so many problems. Uh, so you don't want to be the emperor out of Star Trek. 
No, good God, why would you don't want to prescribe a different snack every day? (laughs) (laughs) I I just started because it just came out yesterday in the book, The the End of the Death, which is the uh, book eight, part one uh, of the second prequel series that's run something like 70 books for the Horus Heresy. And they uh, the the book has the emperor on his throne to start the thing off at, and he's kind of like Leto from the Dune series, too. And so far as about the only thing you know for sure about them is that. You would not want their job ever. Uh, even if you were an insane megalomaniac, you wouldn't want their job ever. And I tend to assume that's a very accurate view of actually wanting to run things. I, I really prefer to do it from the sidelines where I can kind of snipe and take pot shots at people as opposed to have to actually be responsible for it myself. Sir Gog says, and thank you for your $5 super chat, if future generations conclude that a, quote, rare abiogenesis is the Fermi paradox solution? Would this change ethical considerations around panspermia? Um, can you read that one more time? I feel like I missed the key piece on that. If future generations conclude that rare abiogenesis is the Fermi paradox solution, would this change ethical considerations around panspermia? Well, I think the issue with panspermia is, is the concept there generally, and there are multiple forms of it, is the idea is that You'd have life on a comet, for instance, that was spreading all over the galaxy, and that's where life kind of came down from, is, you know, spread interstellarly that way. Um, if you mean more in the sense of, like, what would we do if we came across a plant that also had life on it, and we almost never found that, I think the answer would be that you would never want to touch a planet that you found life on uh, that wasn't, you know, related to us, especially if you couldn't confirm that initially, because you're not going to know. You show up on some planet and, oh, look, they've got, you know, they don't even use DNA. You don't initially know that that's not from Earth. You don't know that was on someone's von Neumann probe. They sent out 10,000 years before your ship got there. And it's just been put together by some DNA editing. So unless we find plants almost everywhere with life on it, the one thing you can be sure of is if we do find life, you're probably going to have worse people fighting over who's going to protect it as opposed to actually wanting to knock it out, destroy it, or replace it. It'd be too precious a commodity. It'd be worth a million times its own weight in gold, so to speak. Cornell Stamont, thank you for your super chat. He says, what are the problems of sending a spaceship with cryogenic human fertilized eggs that will be raised by AI robots once they land in an exoplanet? Uh, We don't know what those problems are because we haven't had a chance yet, but I think um, Alistair Reynolds looked at one in his episode. uh, There was one short story, I think it was called Frozen, uh, or something very similar to that, Ice Space One, Glacier, that's what it was called. But the kind of a theme was in that Revelation Space series was that a lot of the early ships sent by the Americans, uh, you know, they got there first, but with all the failed colonies because they were basically von Neumann probes that would arrive with frozen embryo and, and raise people. And they said they all turned out to be very happy, well-adjusted sociopaths. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I do think that you're very likely to see some kind of chat GPT equivalent in teddy bears that helps raise kids but helps raise kids in the same way that a baby monitor helps raise kids or a teddy bear helps raise kids or your cat or dog help raise your kid. They're, they're a factor in there, but they're not running the ship. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, again, if it can raise it, then it's not AI doing it. It's just a person that happens to be a robot. You know, that's the same concept for if we send somebody who's an uploaded mind on Android. If you're sending along frozen embryos themselves and something as sophisticated as an AI, why bother using AI? Why not just use a human mind that's been uploaded or frozen, since you're assuming you're going to do that, and just run it on Android? What am I glaring at? Oh, time. <laughs> so it's time for us to go to our next break. Thank you, my wife, for sticking me to these questions. Um, so she has all hand signals. She shows me to let me know that it's time to go to break. We'll go to break for a few minutes, and we'll see you in a couple of minutes. 
So while we're on break for a few minutes, I thought we'd do a quick update and walkthrough of upcoming episodes for the next couple of months. This upcoming Thursday we'll be taking a look at one of my favorite topics, space habitats, and talking more about their practical roles in the future, so this episode is more of a what purpose and role could they serve look at the topic. Then on March 9th we return to the topic of traveling between galaxies, and I want to look beyond just going to Andromeda, which in many ways isn't even a different galaxy, so look at the other neighboring galaxies like the Council of Giants. March 12th, in two weeks, is our Sci-Fi Sunday episode, and we're going to review various apocalyptic doomsday scenarios and ask how bad those would really be and what course you could take afterward. Then on March 16th we'll be exploring the future of exploring our past, with a look at the future of archaeology. March 23rd will be a return to the topic of simulated universes to ask how one might escape from one if in it, or otherwise find the cheat codes. Then on March 30th, we'll close the month out with an expanded redo of our episode on space drive types with the Advanced Spaceship Drive Compendium that will have a runtime of nearly two hours. After that we'll head into April to look at galactic habitable zones, then smart cities and the future of city planning and design on April 13th. Super Weapons on April 16th Sci-Fi Sunday, Life Developing on or Colonizing Giant Earth-like Moons on April 20th, and then we'll close out April with a look at Small Modular Nuclear Reactors. Incidentally, you can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, at go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur, so if you want to see Thursday's upcoming episode, Space Habitats, that was already released earlier this afternoon on Nebula. As to updates on channel production, of course the big one is the ongoing speech therapy. I'm recording this mid-break the day after our last livestream, January 30th, whereas this livestream is coming out at the end of February, and hopefully that means there's a big difference in how I sound, but I suspect that's being overly optimistic, and we'll need a couple more months to see the difference, and that will take a couple more to reflect in the episodes as I record them well in advance and that is assuming there is much difference. As to the accent or speech impediment, call it what you will, there's a question of if I'd redo any episodes if that does get completely fixed, and the answer is basically no but yes. I have updated episodes when I thought I could redo them better, and it has always been my thought I could rewrite the topic significantly better or break it into multiple more detailed videos. There's a few classic episodes I might consider redoing verbatim, just with a new narration and updated video, but by and large I'd rather just redo the topic and update everything, including bits I wished I'd added before or removing tangents, but certain key episodes like the Fermi Paradox Compendium or others we reference a ton for new viewers to watch, and often need to update for new cases anyway, yes those will probably get updated and expanded versions, and again I'm not really taking much for granted in terms of when and how much that problem will be corrected. But that's coming in weeks if not months away, So for now, let's get back to more of your questions. Well, we're most of the way back. (laughs) We are waiting for a moment for child-related crises. One of them decided to have a hissy fit, so I wouldn't say which one. I'm a little bit. I I keep thinking I've probably missed the egg one. I must have said it wrong because I'm like, what is that for Scots? You know, I haven't seen one person actually correctly post the answer yet. Oh. I'm sorry, someone finally did. There we go. <laughs> we are waiting for a moment for Sarah to come back, hopefully, so we can continue going on. Alright, good job Sebastian Grunfeld, unless somebody else got there for us. The answer is indeed 54. 
Uh, so it's one half chickens lays one half eggs in one half days. You just can ignore the one and a half and the one and a half. So you're left with one chicken lays one egg in one and a half days, which would mean that one chicken would lay six eggs over nine days, and then nine of them would do six times nine, fifty-four. All right, welcome back. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you got the answer explained, but it was really fun to see everybody's yeah. explanations and the math on how they got well, there. I, I have and... to go back and check the audio now afterwards to make sure I didn't like botch it. <laughs> <laughs> It was fun. Um, Interdimensional Demon says, what are the areas of science you are most interested in right now? Um, I mean, it's always physics. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I, that's, that's what my degree is in. That's what I went to. Um, just in general, space is usually most interesting to me. I'm not a big one for minor astronomical phenomena. Uh, you know, I, I usually don't like, we found this planet. So I, I, don't, I don't care. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> But the individual details, new kind of qualification of them, yes. Same for like rockets. I tend not to be all that big a deal to me, like what new improvement they've mentioned a rocket. I'm more interested in what's its new payload. So uh, space sediment, that's pretty much what I tend to look at the most. Hobbs and Joe says, would you estimate the probability of a functional unified theory in 10 years? Uh, I honestly do not expect to ever have one. Um, it's it would be neat if we had one and we might get it sooner or later but if we're going by the classic grand unified theory that gravity will mesh up with the other two three or four depending on you want to get forces um i don't see the necessity you know we were talking about that what yesterday or therefore um gravity doesn't act anything like those other ones they're not that similar to each other you know the strong weak and uh, nuclear forces and and electromagnetism but they have they're all in the same kind of power zone they all have a plus and minus value they're all within a couple orders of magnitude in terms of strength. Gravity is a trillion, trillion, trillion times weaker than the weakest of them, and is only attractive. And, you know, it, it's... Why would you assume those are connected? It's just because the other one's war, so it has to be as well. I, I think that's a possibility. We might see that. There's some theory to suggest that could be true, but we shouldn't just kind of take that for granted either. I thought I heard a background beeping and I was... I thought so too, yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah, it's like a Morse code signal or something. Deuce Irea, thank you for your super chat. Do you think we'll ever end up with a society of geoengineered individuals who can change gender at will like the culture? Um, well, it wasn't at will with the culture. I think it took them months, but uh, uh, I guess it was under their own volition. If you wanted to do that enough, a transhuman setup could do that. I mean, it's, it's one of those kind of complicated things there we're not going to waste time on what the definition of gender is for today which is assume physical sex for ease of purpose there's obviously multiple ways one could define that but if we're just talking about changing the uh, the plumbing specifically the plumbing that should be something you'd be able to do by sufficiently complicated surgeries that being the case doing that at will that starts getting to the like idea why would you have that particular genetic augmentation to allow that as opposed to since the technology is probably just there going the surgery to have it done i don't need to have a the ability to change my hair color at will i can just go get some dye and so it's something you probably could build in but i wouldn't really tend to think it's something that most people would bother having built in cornell stamat says could people live on a dyson sphere around the sun after it becomes a white dwarf or is it impossible because gravity becomes much stronger the closer you get to a white dwarf um to a degree it depends on how cold it gets uh, the frequency of light's not really your friend on that one either, because it's going to be a lot higher in the UV. It's you know, it's it's harsh light that comes off a white dwarf. But 
generally speaking, think like a millionth the light the sun puts out. Maybe less. I could be like 10 million. I can't recall off the top of my head. And it drops with time. I just think it's dimmer and dimmer. But um, you have a period of around a billion years where you have a sphere that's, say, a thousandth the size that we currently are that would fit around just fine. And that's starting to get a range where I think you'd have the gravity be kind of high, but I'd have to I'd have to run the numbers on that one. And off the top of my head, I couldn't say it. I think we, we covered that in Dying Stars, I think, didn't we? So see our episode Dying Stars, I think we did talk about that, what specific case they are. I think the answer was yes, but they might need some modification. Wargiver says, how close are we really to shoveling space rock or regolith into a machine and it's spitting out the component elements in ingot form? Ingot form. That seems like an important step for space colonization. Yeah, I locked down that because that was one of the crossword puzzle clues, actually. I know. Crosswords I, I was reading it, and then I was like, yeah. yeah really lazy crossword or two. It was like, what comes after it? It was like a string of letters just in alphabetical order. Um, but uh, what was the question? I think the clue was what comes after Q, and the answer was RST. Yes, that was what it was. What comes after Q, RST. It was uh, weird. Or, no, it was follows Q, which was confusing. Yeah. Um, oh, but they also had ingot on there. Yes. What was the actual question for the audience? <laughs> oh, yes. How close are we to shoveling space rock or regolith into a machine and it's spitting out the component elements in ignite forms? Um, ingot forms. I would say that we could potentially have something like that online. I mean, the, the follow-up on that has to be whether or not you actually would want to do that specific thing. I think that we have to kind the technology to that ourselves if we are running it. And then the biggest problem we have is that nobody really has a big incentive other than in the case of space travel, right? As big as NASA is, as interesting as NASA is, they are a very tiny fragment of technology, research, and engineering. Nobody else has a motivation to make a truly automated system like that for production. Why would you when you have people on hand that are much cheaper to go look at it and you have to go through prototyping? So you're looking for something that could land on an asteroid, operate completely independently, and basically what centrifuge material. You could make a machine that did that fairly easily. Right? It'd be a power hog, but you could. Uh, that's probably not the most energy efficient way to do that, but Big Pro flies in, sits with solar panels, grabs a chunk of dirt, blows that thing with tons of energy, and then centrifuges the gas, and then spits that out as ingots. That should be doable right? with modern technology automated. I don't think that would be the best way about doing that, though. But it is something we could be doing. In terms of just like, can we make self-replicators and extraction? 20 years for the basic technology if we if we had a motivation to really pile in on that research. I think this might only be a partial question, so you might have to fill in the gap a little bit. Mm -hmm. But Michael, thank you for your super chat. He says, visitors to an O'Neill cylinder are issued caps and told not to look up to avoid panic. So I'm going to make a guess there that the problem with an O'Neill cylinder is that when you look up, you know, it's like here on Earth, you see your neighbor's yard next to you and across from you. But on an O'Neill cylinder, you see your neighbor's yard above you, too. They're, they're hanging overhead. Uh, and I think for some people, that might be a bit of a panicky inspiring spirit, especially if something like a skyscraper on an O'Neill cylinder for the people who live on the other side of it, because it looks like there's a giant dagger waiting to fall out and hit you at any moment. Uh, it would not do so if you cut it, but, you know, the brain is wired for this planet. It's not that for a rotating cylinder. Uh, we don't really know what kind of things like that might pop up, but... You know, that's one of those examples of you can model it, we can guess it, we can theorize it, but until we build stuff like that and actually check, we don't really know what things might set people off to be panicky. And you know, when you're busy building airplanes or ships or submarines, the last thing you tend to think about is something like that, but also the most important is what happens when the crew or the passengers suddenly realize they are inside a 
thin little metal thing that's flying through the air hundreds of feet off the ground, thousands of feet off the ground, or thousands of feet underwater, getting ready to be crushed at. And there's nothing they could do to save themselves if that happened. You know, that is the kind of thing you don't really think of in the engineering phase, but really, really matters. Mm -hmm. And that is one of those things we're going to have to find out when it comes to planetary colonization and space settlement. Especially... Um, <laughs> especially since uh, hitting the wrong button can result uh, in life and death scenarios yeah. much more quickly than walking the wrong direction on your road. stuff is nice. It's nice to have something to let you know you're about to do something that is a bad idea, like ride off the road. Silver Comic says, in your field of science fiction and futurism, on what subject have you had the largest change of mind? Um... I mean, the one that first comes to mind, I don't know if it'll be the biggest one, was power beaming. I, I used to really hate the idea of you know, beaming energy from the sun down to Earth, because to me it was the same thing as death ray. And then it's, it's like, this is a vast source of power, um, and you know, but it's a death ray. You're beaming power to Earth. And then I had somebody who was actually more involved that sit down and like, talk to me about it. Like, this is actually very easily made safe. Uh, because you know, you'd say, well, if someone, if someone hijacks this, so what do they do? It's the beam that's designed to come down as a diffuse beam. They, they need hours to try to change something like that over to make it more focused, as opposed to just launch something themselves that was just a death ray. And in that time, you could easily blow them up because it's a satellite in orbit. So <laughs> that would be the one I really changed views on, was the idea of power beaming being too dangerous to ever be used. Liam today, thank you for your super chat. He says, how do you think dark era AI would deal with universal expansion and proton decay if... They never found a way to leave this universe faster than light or time travel. Is the only option to create a Boltzmann brain? Oh, well, I would argue that you can't create a Boltzmann brain. <laughs> you just have to wait till it forms naturally, otherwise it's not a Boltzmann brain. Um, and randomly. Um, actually, I would say it has to be randomly, because if it was forming naturally, that would be kind of implying it was evolved. Um... What do you do in a case like that? Greg Benford's Galactic Center Saga uh, played with that idea, and at that time, Proton Decay was much more popular, so I would suggest that you talk to him on that. I am not a big fan of Proton Decay and Supersymmetry. I'm not, like, opposed to them, per se, but they were very popular when I was going to school as, like, the main theory, and it's kind of fallen off. I don't hear people say Supersymmetry or Proton Decay quite as much. Um, in a situation like that, how do you keep living forever? Are we... Well, we got an episode of Warping Reality that I just wrote that, that does actually play with that idea a little bit more. But I would say, you know, the, one of the ones I always like, could you go ahead and do something like an electron, positron, because it would be proton decay in the case, atoms. And so you have atoms that are made of very, very slowly orbiting electrons and positrons in a vast empty region that was basically making up your computer switches, you know, atoms. And that was, I think, the option that Benford presented there. There are some other options that might be on the table. I think we did discuss some of those in the uh, Civilizations of the Intimes series, but too much time to go into detail on that now. A couple of comments here. We have Peter Ski saying he's uh, not got a question. He's just happy he was able to join the live stream for a change, and thanks awesome. you for your he's hard work. Brain chance to cool down. <laughs> and Forcey says, hi, Isaac, big fan and longtime sub. Keep up the good work, mate. Ah, we will try. Thank you. Do all stars begin their life as a red dwarf, later gaining mass after ignition, or do larger stars require more mass to ignite ignition? Did I read that one earlier? I don't know. Probably. Probably not, actually. I don't recall having a Does it depend on the composition of yeah. the stars? Um, 
you know, I might have to refer that one to an actual astronomer on that one, but my, as I recall, stars are going to form pretty much the period of time it starts taking for all that to really heat up, right? Because fusion is really slow, really slow, especially at lower mass. So all the local gas in the area is going to pretty much form up in there before that's really heated that star up enough to be hot, right? It takes a while for that to heat up. And I think, I would say tens of millions of years after the stars reach the you know critical mass before it's really blowing its solar wind and things away. But that might be one of those examples of things I'm remembering from textbooks written in the 80s. So <laughs> Here's an interesting... Um, but I believe they fought roughly the right mass that they're going to be at before they've actually really gotten to that full-on ignition point. I think this is an interesting question um, and maybe kind of encompassed by some of the designs and things that we saw at the Space Conference, International Space Development Conference. Yeah. Um, someone asks, why should we dis- why should we design a spacecraft hull to be aerodynamic when you can just have a series of inflatable structures that envelope a spacecraft and make it able to fly and survive reentry? Yeah, that's a possibility. It kind of the same thing. Why don't I have you know? Why does my spaceship have to look streamlined when it's going through space when there's no air? And can I just have sections that like pop out? You know, it's a you know compacted compartment. So like your bedroom on board the launched vehicle is designed to fold up into the wall space about that thick, and it just kind of expands, inflates, and blows up to give you space once you're outside the atmosphere. You can do the same for just putting around a, uh, a re-entry cocoon, as you are, into the planet. Uh, the thing is that that would imply it was kind of bigger than the actual ship was originally, at least a little bit, and so you have a much bigger cross-section going in, which is not necessarily optimal. It should be doable. I'd imagine someone's probably looked at that option, too, but I... Uh, it's actually not a bad idea. I should read... There's an episode I've been wanting to do for a while called Drop Ships that, uh, that might be a fun thing to cover there. So I will make a note. <laughs> While you're making that note, I'm going to read a couple more comments. Parker Brown just joined us. He says, Hi, Isaac. I also am an Army artilleryman and a longtime viewer. I just got off duty and tuned in. So glad I could make this one. Oh, hoo-ah. <laughs> Isaac, uh, <laughs> I was going to, sorry, jump into a different question here. Mm-hmm. We have... A question, several questions, wondering what character in fiction you find the most relatable and what character that you find the most interesting. Um, follow up with a previous question. Once a star gets hot enough, it will start blowing other gases, falling towards it away. And that kind of gives that maximum out, like a Wolf Rayette star. So uh, just kind of your maximum at that point. Whenever a star reaches a temperature that it's producing too much solar wind for random passing matter to fall in on it, that's when it's going to reach its maximum mass. Um, so that usually, again, has to be after it's pretty much ignited. Um, what was that question again? So I can't chop. No walking, chewing bubblegum today. No. <laughs> um, what character in fiction do you find the most relatable, and what character do you find the most interesting? Um, Neville from Revelation Space. I can't remember his his last name right now, but I was about to call him Neville Chamberlain, which is obviously not it, but Neville. Um, I, he's the main character of that series, uh, well, one of the main characters. He was very relatable to me, so was uh, the, the other one, the protagonist of the horse one, Dan Sylvester. Um, but, oh, Calvin. Um, just for that series in general, I find relatable in many ways, but I think I also liked Algenia Olivar from the Robot series and Elijah Bailey. Those were ones I could relate to a lot. There's a fair number of them, but usually I'm not trying to relate personally to them so much. as I, 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 
you know, you, you have two ways you can read stories. You can get into them for the first person, and Roger's Lazny was great at doing that. I loved following those characters along, where it's kind of like they're talking to you as a story, and, or you see their first-hand accounts, or it can be where someone's narrating to you about this person who's interesting to you, and you relate to them that way. I don't usually empathize, or, you know, I'm not usually trying to put myself in their shoes as them, so much as what would I do in their case. Because um, a lot of the most interesting characters are awfully just awful people if you look at them from like the uh, non-character driven morality like uh, Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones for instance not a nice person yeah very interesting character but uh, not a nice person <laughs> Sebastian Grunfeld says can we give farmland back to nature once we have enough cheap energy to meet our nutritional needs through 3d printing and vertical farming um possibly it depends on what the population is at the time what people want to use that for in a lot of cases, it's easier to let it go back to, say, going back to nature. Um, this is a mistake people sometimes make is this idea that that area that was a forest, you know, for the you know, last 50 years, they think that's been a forest forever. It's like, nah, you know, you go dig it around the soil, you'll find out it was a big plain, you know, for you know a couple centuries before that, and before that it was a forest again, and then before that it might have been a glacial. Um, nature moves and changes. It's very dynamic. There's nothing really stable there. So whatever we would do with a piece of farmland, um, when you shift it back around, it's not really going to be like it was before, unless you put a lot of effort into specifically making it like that and keeping it that way. Uh, I think you see reconditioned usage of things like that. I'd say, well, well, we'd like to turn that into a garden park, or we'd like to turn that into you know, something that was more synthesis of, of what we would think of as nature with what we'd like to do with it too. Uh, which might be something as simple as like polycultural farming there, or a forest that was full of tree canopies you could go running around on too. You know, things like that would be very common, I think. And Isaac Bordeaux, if Einstein was brought back today, what aspect do you think of modern physics and cosmology would surprise him the most? Hmm. <laughs> um, so many options to choose yeah. from. Yeah, well, that's the problem is that uh, it would be very wrong to say that we haven't got anything new since, uh, since he passed on. Uh, and I don't remember actually when he did die. I want to say it was in the 40s. Um, but... Uh, because again, a lot of times it's yeah. fleshing out an idea or looking at it differently yeah. than it is necessarily that it's maybe not he never considered it. Yeah, I maybe dark energy and accelerating expansion would get there, but think of the Big Bang and Hubble expansion was already there forever the time. Um, strength theory might be, be interesting to him, but again, that's not. I, I don't know if there'd be anything that would be all that shocking to him. You know, I, I, it's. There's been major changes, but we often get the impression like science is always finding new and things that disprove its core existence. And you know, that's got to be kind of a meme in our civilization. That's not true of physics. Um, there really isn't been all that much. You know, we find all these cool new things, but the fundamental laws have very rarely shifted all that much. Even Einsteinian relativity was not actually that big of a shock or shift to the climate. Quantum was. Quantum was a big shift because we were very deterministic, and that was a philosophical mindset. That, so that took actual big worldview shift, uh, but relatively a little bit less so. And I don't think there's been anything that's really been all that huge of a shift uh, in the last century. Sanabella says, if non-FTL wormholes were viable, would it be possible to build a galactic power grid by dumping them, for example, into star cores? Yeah, uh, that was the last entry. I, I just got done recording the advanced spaceship drive compendium which I think came out like 100 minutes long, my sponsor and outro on it. Um, and the very last entry drive is wormhole drives and uses a specific case of what if you couldn't use them for travel scene, how would you use them for driving a spaceship? 
And there's a number of ways you could do that, but let's say I take one end of the wormhole and dump it into a stall, and the other end of the wormhole, and I put it on the back of a spaceship. Now, that is a little bit iffy in terms of how real wormholes would operate, especially because more than one type of wormhole. There's obviously the Einstein-Rosen bridge option. But uh, if you think of it was just like a classic Stargate portal, then you suddenly have a gigantic flaring you know, exhaust of hyper, you know, hot plasma from a stall blowing out the back of your spaceship and an infinite supply. Well, not infinite, but much bigger than your spaceship. And that's a very awesome spaceship drive, uh, as well as weapon. Um, so <laughs> you could dump one of those on the other of someone's planet and just roast it. But uh, that would be one way you could use them for that, same for power supplies. Pretty much, if you can find a way to make power with it, you can find a way to make a spaceship drive out of it. Okay. I'm I'm kind of going through. I think we've gotten off on a few rabbit trails, and so I'm not sure I have any more direct. I'm surprised I haven't got off on more. I know. It's like I live on rabbit trails. I know. <laughs> um, I'll just get back to my main point eventually. Here's an, interesting, here's an interesting comment. What is your take on the chat GPT and OpenAI? Do you predict encyclopedic information hubs like Wikipedia will adopt a new user interface like the Photonic Librarian in the movie Time Machine from 2022? Um, to be honest, I, I would sorry, expect there to be something new as opposed to Wiki. Um, yeah, I was one of the early editors on Wikipedia, not like first hundred or anything like that, but you know, it, when it was still a relatively new thing, I did editing on it. And I lost my entry code when I joined the army. Um, and... Uh, I tried to start editing again, so like 2010, 2011, something like that. And uh, I was already very impressed that time by how cliquish it had kind of gotten. There were very much, very much specific rules you kind of had to follow in me and things, but I really limited people's ability to change a page or things like that. Like, you know, I hate the way to do bios there, for instance. Mine has this bizarre joke somebody built in there about me being born of two physicists. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to two of my parents bet while they were physics majors. One of them didn't even finish. They'd be able to win computers instead. But uh, Wikipedia is definitely, to me, it's what everyone's favorite source. I saw it focused on you, so I forgot to turn the camera off. Um, so, like, Wikipedia is not to be the wave of the future for encyclopedias anymore. It's the thing that's going to be the thing like the Oxford Encyclopedia that I will use the base of what the new one should be. And I think Google already kind of beat it around that because you just Google up an answer. But yes, something like ChatGPT as an interface for a new wiki, that's probably how that would look out. So don't think of ChatGPT as like the, the final product here of what's going to be the customer service angle or things like that. It's more like the first search engine that's going to start doing that. And it's really more, we finally made an AI search engine type thing that's actually able to carry on what's not an automatically horrible conversation with a human. You know, like when you first started calling... Uh, automated customer services like press 1 for English, press 2 for some other language. Uh, if you want to get into the following departments, press 1, 2, 3, blah, blah, blah. And some of the automated ones will say, what would you like to do? And you'd ask it a question and it would be like, just keep repeating you. It would know what it was doing, right? Very transparent, very irritating, set your teeth on edge because it was too slow or too specific. It could get like, say yes or no. Yep. I'm sorry. I thought I heard you say people. You know, something weird like that. ChatGTP is just finally caught up to the point where it can not trickle people as a horrible interface we're talking to. That's not a final product, and that's going to look very different for different applications. For asking questions, yes. Yeah, you want something where you just say, I don't have to look it up. I can say, how far is it to Pluto? And it's not going to automatically give me some weird answer. It's going to tell me right what it is right now, and it changes. And it's not going to tell me in centimeters. It's going to tell me in kilometers or miles based on, you know, me and not in like 0, .0 light years or things like that. 
so that's kind of what that's moving on to. I think, yes, to answer the question that I kind of wandered off on a rabbit trail again about, yes, I think you would probably see that, but I don't think that would be the change that Wikipedia did, mostly because I don't think Wikipedia would be really embracing change as fast as somebody else could replace it with something different. <laughs> so. uh, random question. Somebody just asked if Jupiter just passed Saturn again. Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, I'm not sure that actually, in terms of like, do they, can they were, I don't know. I don't know. I remember that having come up in terms of conjunctions, but I don't really pay attention to that that much. I pay attention to the eclipses because they're visually interesting. That's about it. <laughs> and I do find this one amusing. A couple of the responses to your teleporter comment at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. uh, a teleporter is basically a replicator with disintegrated items after scanning oh, them. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, this is a great one about science fiction. Um, on the one hand, if you're writing, you should always be trying to think about the bizarre uses people might put your system to use in terms of like making money or killing people. And on the other hand, the upside is if you do put one of those kind of mistakes in there, like replicators, which should never introduce Star Trek, um, then you do at least have a problem that never comes up as an issue unless your series is so popular that you can kind of think of it as a, a cost of doing business. You had a very successful series, and now you have to uh, do some rec kind to fix it. But um, The other comment yeah. I found very amusing was about passing through a black hole, the, something the size of a truck, and somebody coming out missing all of their atoms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100% scrambled in information. Uh, I teleported home one night with Ron and Sid and Meg. Ron stole Meggie's heart away, and I got Sidney's leg. <laughs> I love Douglas Adams. <laughs> I think we have... Uh, I think Time we've gotten most of it. Yeah, I, I think the last question here is going to be, if you could step through a teleporter... And teleport to the moon, given all the dangers and risks that we just contemplated. But you could step to the moon base in the future. Would you personally risk it in terms no. of the debate about whether no. that's you or a copy no. that arrives? <laughs> that's a smart answer. I am risk you want to stay like, Would you go up on a spaceship if someone found you a slot? No. No, I, I love the idea of settling space. I, I really like my house. I like my farm here. I'm staying here. <laughs> Other younger folks can go enjoy that who are less risk of war. So they like to fly planes for hobbies. I, uh, I'm not that uh, into that. I like to fly, and yeah. I also like to come back and see my husband and children. Yeah, uh, I don't like the idea of becoming too. an atom <laughs> scramble for breakfast. Well, so if I believe the same person, or I lose my soul along the way. I'm sure Harlan Ellison wrote a really nice short story on that, too. I might think of another one like Fat Harmony, which was different. But... Um, there's some great sci-fi on that, but we can't answer that philosophically. And I don't know if you could do the answers like that scientifically anyway. You know, did I lose my sword? Did it get replaced with an identical one of my same person as was before? Not really a good science question. So. I, I see way across the room there in the fine print it says, you is still you. You is still you, yeah. <laughs> I am me. That's a good answer for that one. Um, but... Uh, I would not be wanting to do that. I'm not sure I'd encourage you to do that. My first thought would be, why don't we send through some inanimate objects first? And let's also, while we're at, send through, say, a mouse and a fly at the same time and see if we get the result from that. Because that movie, The Fly, had come out just when I was a kid. It was like the horror movie on teleportation that everyone was quoting for years. and uh, Or that awful scene. It, 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 Star Trek Two, great movie. Star Trek One, not so great. They got that crazy transporter moment where the science officer comes on board and gets scrambled right there live and is like screaming. And that's of course why Spock has to show up looking like Count Dracula for some reason in that film. Um, but we could go off on that tangent for a while. Instead though, let's close out for today. 
<laughs> I would not go off in a teleporter forced. I would not encourage you to send anything living through there. And I would suggest waiting quite some time before you send through anything that you were attached to emotionally. <laughs> but eventually, sure, why not? So we can go through. <laughs> I'm a little bit more like McCoy than, than, uh, than Spock on things like that. <laughs> so that wonderful note, we'll go ahead and sign off for today. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you on Thursday.